Well, last time I was here at the podium, I wrapped up a nine-month series we called The Kingdom of God. Uh, we said that when you break it down, the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is really about God's value system in His kingdom. And we've said all along that the kingdom of God isn't limited to whatever you think about heaven or the afterlife, but that actually when Jesus arrived on the scene in Matthew 4, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So yes, it's in the future in all of its fullness, but it's here now. It's here and not yet fully here. And oh, we get to be a part of it. So anyway, when I wrapped up a couple weeks ago, I really thought I was kind of finally putting a period on the end of this series, but then I got thinking about it and I decided that I had a little bit more I wanted to say uh, specifically about this story that Jesus tells at the very end of his sermon in Matthew 7 in verses 24 to 29. So if you'll indulge me, um, I guess this is part 19, like a bonus episode. Let me read these verses for you again. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So I thought we'd start with a little bit of sociology this morning. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that track my attention, and I end up going down deep rabbit holes on the internet. But I found these three ideas from three key thinkers over the last few decades, and I found it interesting, and I think it's, it explains why uh, Jesus' point is so important, especially for us in here and now. So first off, I want to talk about Buckminster Fuller. He was an architect. He, was, he became a futurist and um, a systems theorist. He came up with what he called uh, the knowledge doubling curve, the knowledge doubling curve. He estimated that since the year of Jesus' birth, it took 1,500 years for the cumulative knowledge of all of human civilization to double. 1,500 years. But from there, it took 250 years for it to double again. What changed there, it's easy to point out, was the printing press. From there, it doubled every 100 years up till World War II. After that, it doubled every 25 years until the 80s, where it was every 12 to 13 months that the cumulative knowledge of all of human history had doubled. Now, estimates put that number right about 12 hours. So do the math. If you were born the same year as Jesus of Nazareth, it would take a millennia and a half for everything that is known to double. If you're born tomorrow morning, it would double before the end of your first day. So number one, we have more information than ever before. It, it's for good reason that ours is called the information age. Secondly, Thomas Friedman, who was a journalist, writes about what he calls the age of acceleration. That's what he calls our cultural moment. Everything has sped up to this breakneck speed, and in particular technology. In fact, his study concluded that technology is increasing faster than the human capacity to adapt. 
so that we literally can't adapt fast enough to keep up with the pace of change. And this has created an age of anxiety where we all feel chronically behind the curve. And then finally, number three is Neil Postman, a cultural commentator and media critic. He coined the phrase information to action ratio. By that, he meant how much information we put into action in our life. He wrote that the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. We are drowning, he said, in information and we have no control over it and we don't know what to do with it. Postman said what that creates in the human psyche is a state of being used to hearing vast amounts of information, even being moved by a lot of that information, and then doing absolutely nothing about it, what he called a low information to action ratio. So to recap, three ideas. <clears throat> we have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by the explosion of information. And number three, we're used to hearing all this information, even being moved by it, and doing nothing with it. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago for Jesus, if you want to follow him, to experience life in what he called the kingdom of God, the reality of what God is about, then this just won't do. To hear and not act. To agree but not apply. It's not enough. You have to go do something about it. In Jesus' words, you have to put it into practice. So we said a few weeks ago, because we are so familiar uh, with some of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, including the story of the wise man and the foolish man, I mean, how many people heard the song in Sunday school? If you were fortunate enough uh, to grow up in the church <coughs> and you, <coughs> excuse me, you saw the flannel graph and you know the story and all along you've been under the impression maybe that the moral of the story is to be wise and build your life on a solid foundation. Don't be foolish and build your life on a shifting foundation. But if that's all that we think this means, we have missed the point because what Jesus is actually saying here is that we must put his teachings into practice. And if we do, then we're like the wise man. If we listen to his teachings and we're super familiar with the Bible, but we don't apply the truth to our lives, if we don't put it into practice, then we're like the foolish man. And so a few weeks ago, we said that familiarity, it doesn't always breed contempt but it always breeds apathy and indifference and inaction. In the book of Proverbs, there's a similar parable, but it's a woman, not a man this time. Proverbs 14 says, The wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. This was language right out of the Hebrew wisdom tradition, and it was language out of Greek philosophy and, and the virtue ethics of the ancient Greco-Roman world. My point is Jesus is tapping into an existing ongoing conversation in his day inside and outside of Israel about who is wise and who is a fool, and he, he does this with a parable about two home builders. In Jesus' day, um, a house was a common metaphor for your life because houses were a bit different than what we know today in the modern Western world. First of all, they were not single family, but multi-generational. You lived with two to three generations, and this is still the way it works in some parts of the world. Uh, they were not bought and sold. They were ancestral. When it was time for you to get married and start your own family, you would typically build an addition to your father's house, which was probably an addition to his father's house. And these houses weren't just for R&R &R between work hours. 
you ran your business out of your home. If you were a farmer or a fisherman or a merchant of some kind, you ran your, you ran your business uh, from your home. So your house came to symbolize your life as a whole. Now, Jesus says the person who puts his teachings into practice, these brand new upside down radical teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, the person who puts these teachings into practice is like the wise man because the wise, thoughtful person builds the house of their life on the foundation of practicing his teachings. By the way, in his story, Jesus doesn't tell you which person you are. He lets you find yourself in the story. Are you the wise one? Are you the fool? Are you somewhere in the middle? A little bit of both, depending on the day. Where are you at in practicing his teachings? Here's the thing about this parable in the short run. In the short term, you can't always tell the difference between those who practice Jesus' teachings, house on the rock guy, and those who don't, you know, the house on the sand guy. From a distance, they can look exactly the same. It's true. From a distance, they might look exactly the same in the short run until the storm comes, until the flood comes. Here's the thing. Eventually, the storm will come. Eventually, the rains will come. Someday, the waters will rise. It's not an if, it's when. And I think it's interesting that both the wise man and the foolish man go through the same storm. Those that build their life on practicing the way of Jesus and those who do not build their life around practicing the way of Jesus, it rains on both of them. They both experience the storm. They both go through the flood. And I love that about Jesus. I find it interesting uh, because, uh, and, and it's really refreshing to me because he's just so honest and it rings true to the human experience. And if you ever wonder, you know, what am I doing wrong? Because, you know, it just won't stop raining in my life and it always seems to be raining and you, you always feel like you can't keep ahead of the flood. Listen, in Jesus' story, they both experience the same storm. It's part of being human. And I love that Jesus uh, doesn't try to lead us out of hardship or away from the storm, but he gives us a way to make it through the storm. And here's the thing, when the storm comes, when the floodwaters are on the rise, it will shake the house of your life to the core and it will, listen, it will reveal what your life is actually built on. It'll either be one of the best experiences of your life or one of the worst experiences. And if your life is built on anything other than Jesus and the values of his kingdom, then I would say get ready because in the words of Jesus, your house will fall with a great crash. I see his teaching here as a much-needed wake-up call that information alone does not equal transformation. Hearing alone does not bring application. Knowledge alone does not mean we're putting it into practice. Because knowing something is not the same as doing it. Listen, this sermon that we've been talking about for nine months, this thing that I've been calling Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God, it's not just an ideology. It's not just a set of ideas that you ascribe to. It's a way of life. It is mind. It is body. It is something you act on and act out with your whole person, with your thoughts, in your worship, in your relationships, in the way that you interact with the world around you. So, information is not enough. 
Because Jesus' end goal isn't to inform us, it's to transform us into people who are like him. That's more than information transfer. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at information transfer. I mean, I've watched a lot of Jeopardy. I know things. But we can't just think our way, read our way, sermon our way, podcast our way, church attendance our way to transformation. Transformation requires first that we put truth into practice. And it takes a lifetime of practice and not just practice. Listen, it requires community. Now, this gets lost in translation from Greek to English, not in a bad way because you can trust the translations, all right? But in English, we don't have a plural for the pronoun you. I lived in the South for five years. I have family in the South. They would say, oh, yes, we do have a plural for you. It's like, come on, y'all. But, but there really isn't a plural for you in the English language. But in Greek, there's a singular and a plural for the word you. And pretty much every single time you is used in the Sermon on the Mount, it is plural. You are the light of the world. Not you as in me, the reader, but all of you followers of Jesus, the church around the world. You are the light of the world. Jesus assumes, one, that this will take a lifetime of practice, and two, that this will take a community to pull it off. You can't make this happen by yourself. I grew up in a church tradition where the Bible was central. Maybe that's the tradition you grew up in if you grew up in church. Maybe the church you grew up in literally had Bible in the name. And as a teacher of the Bible for the last 30 plus years, I've had to learn kind of the hard way and eat a little humble pie and realize that Bible teaching alone does not necessarily transform people. And again, that's not because it's a bad thing. <coughs> it's, it's the beginning, but it's not the middle, much less the end. I know a whole lot of people that have been around church for a long time, have gone to church like every single Sunday for decades who know the Bible really well and are still driven by things like a father wound, still getting identity from accomplishment or accumulation rather than from the love of their father in heaven. They're still not present to God, to the person in front of them, to their family, to their own soul. They're still racked by anxiety, still not self-aware, still not open and honest about their shadow side. Oh, but they know the book of Romans inside and out. In fact, they're probably better equipped to teach some parts of the Bible than I am. But listen, stay with me here. Knowing the Bible is not the same thing as living the way of Jesus, living the values of the kingdom that he came to bring. <clears throat> and I know uh, some people, even some people who call faith community home, undervalue the Sunday gatherings and the teachings of the scriptures. And I think some people overestimate the capacity of a Sunday gathering and of the teaching of the Scripture. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Jesus won't do it all for you in an hour on Sunday morning. He won't do that with little to no partnership from you. It's just not what He's like. He, he created you as a free, intelligent being that has a will that is the center of your person, and He wants to join with you in partnership with the Holy Spirit uh, in your community to, to shape you, to reshape you. And that takes more than coming together and singing songs and hearing sermons, both of which are important and powerful. Here's the thing. The nature of the church is to function in two settings. The church gathered in what we refer to as the congregational or the corporate setting, 
and the church scattered in community, like a small group setting, for instance. The problem for us is not in proving that the first century church existed in both settings. That's obvious in the New Testament. The problem today is that the traditional church structure and the things that we emphasize in church tend to ignore the New Testament pattern. And so we tend to find ourselves living without New Testament biblical community. And for all the talk about the church having closed a few months ago, oh, and some churches are still not meeting together on Sunday mornings, and in some cases those churches have. Some of those churches have literally shut down. I mean, there's nothing going on. There's no life outside of the Sunday gathering. For others, they haven't shut down at all. Oh, maybe they're not together yet on Sundays, but they have embraced the church scattered, the church meeting intentionally in smaller settings and serving one another and serving their communities in smaller settings. Um, and believe me, I've, I've thought a lot about this since the middle of March. Um, if we weren't able to gather together on Sundays in a larger group, whatever that looks like, do we cease to be the church? I mean, if we can only meet in homes in groups of no more than 10 people, which was the case in May, could we still thrive? Because some of us have continued to meet together, except for the month of April, where we were really, really, everybody was being super careful. But for some of us who've continued to meet together, we would say, yeah, the church can thrive. We can grow deeper in our relationships with one another. And because of that, we can grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. So that's definitely possible. And there are always things in the life of the church that I wish that I could just press a button and everyone would just automatically experience. <clears throat> I wish all of you, for instance, could experience what it is to pour into the life of a child in our children's ministries and to sit with them in their small groups and to pray with them sitting there on the floor in a huddle of little kids and then to see them follow Jesus and get baptized and maybe mention your name in their baptism video because you got to be a part of that. I wish all of you could experience what some of us have gotten to experience three times now in our mission to Guatemala, to serve people who have next to nothing, certainly compared to what we have, who are so needy and yet so grateful. I wish all of you could share in the experiences that Alethea and I have had in hosting and leading a small group for over 20 years now to grapple with questions, tough passages of Scripture, biblical principles that are sometimes hard to implement, and to walk with our friends through some tough times and to celebrate with them in the good times. I wish you could experience that. And honestly, above everything else, this is the thing for me. This is the thing that if I just could push a magical button, one of the things that would be true for all of us is that you would be in some sort of intentional biblical community, some sort of intentional, maybe structured biblical community with other followers of Jesus doing life together so that as things come along, the good things, the bad things, things to celebrate, things to encourage each other through, I would just push a button and place all of us in meaningful relationships with other believers. Because I'm convinced that as great as Sunday morning is, and we put, a, <coughs> we put a lot of emphasis on this setting, and we put a lot of thought into this environment, and your pastors and the worship band and the children's ministry leaders and the people who prepare the facility put a lot of preparation into this experience. And as important and as great as we believe this environment is, the truth is, we've said this before, and we'll say it again, I'm still convinced that circles are better than rows. Face-to-face -face is better than all your faces looking at me or looking at a screen. I'm convinced of it because that's the kind of setting where I've seen significant growth happen. 
It's where you get a deep sense of belonging. You get a deep sense that you are known. It's where you get the best spiritual care. And listen, as elevated and as world-changing as the teachings of Jesus are, His manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it's on another level. It is all but impossible to put that into practice on your own. To take it from a Sunday gathering and then just start living it out on your own is next to impossible. And Jesus said, it's about putting it into practice. So what if, what if we could create environments where real relationships with God and with each other could grow every time we're together? What if all kinds of people could gather in those environments to hear inspiring stories and to engage in conversations on a regular basis? What if we gathered with one another to discuss topics relevant to our lives, spend lots of time in guided conversation, experience spiritual aha moments together, those moments that connect God to our everyday lives? The thing I want you to hear today, smart as you are, as mature as you are as a follower of Jesus, as knowledgeable as you might be about the Bible, as involved as you are in stuff around the church. In spite of all that, Jesus says it's impossible for you to get through life without, at some point in your life, without the storm coming your way. The same rain falls on the wise man and the foolish man. The rain will come and the waters will rise and the flood will come. And at that point, it's too late to start work on your foundation. Your foundation is either already solid because you put the teachings of Jesus into practice or your foundation is shifting because you haven't or haven't been able to put the teachings of Jesus into practice and something, perhaps your whole life, perhaps your whole house, comes crashing down. King Solomon put it this way. He said, pity the person who stumbles and falls and has no one there to help them up. Pity the person who stumbles and falls and no one is so relationally connected to them that they see what has happened or what is happening and can stop and help them up. <clears throat> and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you're thinking, well, here you go again on this because you're like a broken record. That's nice for you, Todd, but I don't need that. Been a Christian a long time, read lots of books, haven't missed church in 27 years. I used to teach Sunday school when that was a thing. I don't really need what you're talking about. This sounds great for some people. In fact, I can think of some people that we probably ought to sign up for that. Be real. They'd really benefit from what you're talking about, but, but I don't really need that. I don't really have time for that. I'm a pretty busy person. I have a job and I have kids and I come to church most Sundays. I just don't have time. <clears throat> and then the storm comes. Listen, if you have not laid the groundwork relationally, if you have not gotten significantly connected to some people who can be there for you to disagree with you, to tell you the truth when you don't want to hear it, who refuse to just go away, who refuse to leave you in the ditch, if you don't have those kinds of relationships when things are good, Solomon says, pity anyone who doesn't have that because when you need it, you're not going to find it. When you need it, you're not even going to seek it out. When you need it, you're not going to initiate it and you might not even be open to it. And listen carefully, I'm going to say something that might be offensive, but I just don't know how else to say it, so I've written it down. No matter who you are, no matter what your spiritual pedigree is, no matter how much knowledge you have accumulated, no matter how many positions that you have held in churches or whatever, when it comes to putting the teachings of Jesus into practice, the values of his kingdom, putting them into practice, you cannot do it on your own. 
the values of the kingdom of God are to be practiced in community with one another. And when you read the New Testament, there is just no way to escape this truth. So here's the implication. If you are not living in community with other Christians, if you are not regularly in environments where you are sitting face-to-face with other followers of Jesus for the purpose of bringing each other along in the ways of the kingdom, the life-giving transformational values of the kingdom of God, they will never really be a part of your life. Even Jesus' closest followers, his first disciples, lived in community with one another. The early church met together in each other's homes to share in each other's lives. For centuries, this is how the church worked, just how the church worked. So what we really want for you is to be connected. For you to have significant, growing connections with other Christ followers. Doesn't really matter to us where or how that happens. It just matters that it happens and that it's meaningful, that it's growing, and that the relationship revolves around Jesus. So, we're working on fleshing out some ideas for what that means for us, what exactly that might look like in the next few weeks and months. For one thing, there's a sign-up sheet in the lobby today. It's really just an interest form, so there's no commitment, okay, at this point. We want to know how many of you are ready to plug into a group or a class, maybe, either in a home or right here in the church building during the week. And we're not even talking every week. We're talking a couple times a month. And we're not talking a lifetime commitment. We're talking about October, November, and December. So we're going to put a, a sign-up sheet in the lobby today, and we're putting a link in the chat for those of you who are with us on Church Online. So take a minute to stop by that interest form in the lobby or click on the link in chat or check your email and reply to the email from us that you're going to get this week. Because if this quarantine, you know, coronavirus quarantine 50-person limit thing has shown us anything, it's that we can't build the church around the idea that we all have to be together in the same place at the same time for the same experience every Sunday morning. In fact, I'm more convinced than ever that circles are better than rows. Listen, I love Sunday mornings. Some of us love what happens here on Sunday mornings. Some of you I know have just been really deeply missing Sunday mornings. And we think it's awesome. We're always wanting to make it better, more impactful, more memorable, more welcoming, more engaging, and all that. But listen, storms and stumbling blocks are going to come. And when they do, you won't have any desire to come sit in a row Because when it comes to storms and stumbling blocks, sitting in rows is kind of pointless. There has to be somebody who loves you so much, who is so connected to you, that they feel comfortable standing beside you, speaking truth into your life, connecting and correcting you when you're wrong, encouraging you when you're right, helping you out of the ditch, picking you up out of the rising waters when the floods come. So my point here, all I'm saying in this cultural moment where Low information to action ratio is the norm. It's our default. This teaching of Jesus should arrest our hearts. Are we, are you building your life on the way of Jesus, on the values of his kingdom, on practicing and applying and putting the values of his kingdom into action? That's what Jesus meant when he prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done It means we have to do something. We have to act on what we've heard. Jesus said, put it into practice. This is a teaching of Jesus about the expectation of putting all of his teachings into practice. And I love how the message interprets this last line, verse 29 of chapter 7. It says, he's all done. And it just says, it was apparent 
that he was living everything he was saying. That's moral authority. That's what gives his teaching credibility. This is the most impactful kind of authority. Of course, when, when it comes to Jesus, he was more than just a conduit of truth. He embodied truth. He was the source of truth itself. So Jesus says, what you do with this, with my teaching, with my kingdom values, determines what kind of house you are building. Your house is your life. Everybody builds a life. You can't not build a life. You are building a life. The question isn't, are you building a life? It's what are you building your life on? Underneath what everyone can see about your life, what's the bedrock? Is it Jesus and practicing his way to be human in community, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Or is it something else or somebody else that will not survive the flood when it comes? Jesus ends this greatest teaching in all of human history not with a pep talk, not with a, you know, go out and change the world. He ends it with a sober warning for you and me. He says, anyone who hears everything that I just put in front of you and what people will come to call the Sermon on the Mount, this whole manifesto, if you will, this whole new way to be human that is countercultural, but it's better than anything the world has to offer. He says, anyone who hears that and does not put it into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So, will you put his teachings into practice? And will you do it today? Will you do it in the interactions with your own family today, with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your parents? Will you do it tomorrow with your boss, with your coworkers, with your employees? Will you make sure you're in community with other followers of Jesus so that together you can be more consistent, have more follow-through as you learn to practice the way of Jesus? Will you do that? I mean, will you really do it or will you simply think, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, I should do that? Will you do that? Here's some good news. Since we're talking about the need for community, whether you recognize it or admit it or not, we all crave relationship. We want to be known. We want to contribute to the conversation. And here's the deal. Our relationship with God develops much like other relationships. It's not a strict linear process. It's like our human relationships. It's messy. It's filled with ups and downs, lots of forward and backwards. And God, our Heavenly Father, is a real being. He's alive and active in our world, and He is ultimately relational. And faith comes to life through relationships. And Jesus said, loving God, loving people. So I hope you'll give this some, some serious consideration. I hope you'll talk with your spouse and with your family, because I, I know you're busy, and I don't mean to make light of that. But just to figure out where you can carve out of your calendar some time so you can make meaningful relational connection with a small group of people, a priority for you and your family. And as we explore this with intentionality over the next few weeks, I hope you'll be a part of the conversation. So we're going get to get to work kind of reimagining and reinventing and creating relational environments where we can experience God, where we can meet practical needs in our, in our church and in our community, where we can provide followers of Jesus with meaningful ministry opportunities, and maybe in the process, just maybe, take on more and more of the values of the kingdom of God here and now. 
So I hope you'll stop by the sign-up sheet, that interest form in the lobby. If you're with us at Church Online, click on the link in the chat where you can express your interest as well as we get more intentional about gathering in circles. So thank you so much for being with us this morning. I look forward to hearing from you as we take these next steps in kind of reimagining our circle environments. God bless you. Have a great week.